1: Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garifoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, our guest is Terry McAuliffe. Now, you may remember Terry McAuliffe as the former governor of Virginia. In fact, he was governor when the tragedy at Charlottesville went down. Or you may remember him as the former DNC chair and a prolific fundraiser. Or you may remember him as a friend of the Clintons. I haven't heard this interview yet, but I'm guessing that he will say the word Clinton within five minutes of starting. Or he, you may remember him as one of the few Democrats not to run for president this year. He decided not to run, and he's got a new memoir out. And he's talking to my friend, the Chronicle's editorial page editor, John Diaz, about that memoir and about life in the public spotlight, especially during Charlottesville. Next, Terry McAuliffe talking with John Diaz.
0: to take your retail business to the next level today, that's shopifycom system
1: Welcome back to It's All Political, and here's the Chronicle's editorial page editor, John Diaz.
2: With me today is uh, Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia and the author of a new book, Beyond Charlottesville. Welcome to the Chronicle, Governor.
3: Thank you, John. It's great to be back with you. It's been a while. I was here when I did my last book uh, back in 2007.
2: Absolutely. Well, talk about timing. You come out with this book, yeah. uh, Beyond Charlottesville, taking a stand against white nationalism. My gosh, that's topic A right now. White nationalism. Uh,
3: I couldn't. When I was putting the book together, I had no idea that we'd be in the situation we're in after El Paso, uh, the issues we've had in Gilroy. I mean, nobody could have predicted it. But you know, I, I should have, as I say, back in two years ago with Charlottesville. Uh, I talk about how I talked to President Trump that day, begged him to come out and do the right thing. But if you remember, John, he refused to condemn the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, wouldn't even use her name, and said there were good people on both sides. So that was his biggest moral failure for me is that day when the world was looking to him to go out and say the right things, to heal the nation, to bring us together, <clears throat> and to say we're not going to tolerate this. Actions that we saw were, I mean, I was there, I've never seen anything like it, the every other word, screaming at African-Americans, telling Jews they were going to burn them like they burned them in Auschwitz. I mean, people used to wear hoods to do this. They don't even do that anymore. So I blame the president. I think he's culpable for his actions, his deeds, and he's inflamed people to come out. And here we are. We've just gone through El Paso where the manifesto specifically references you know, his tweets and white identity and making America white again. Uh, it's a huge problem. And it started... Charlottesville was the day that Donald Trump came out as a full-fledged white
2: supremacist and racist in my mind. I think one of the themes that uh, pervades your book is how shocked you were to see this in in 2017, Virginia. The past week, what we've seen in Gilroy, what we've seen in particularly El Paso. uh, Can you still be shocked anymore? And I I start
3: the book, and I should say, first of all, John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, the great civil rights leader, does the foreword for me. He called me on Monday after uh, I had given my, so I gave my speech Saturday night, and I told him to get the heck out of Virginia leave America. They're not wanted. I did what Trump should have done, and John called me and said it brought tears to his eyes, which is something you think of the history of John Lewis. But I start the book with a history in Virginia. As you know, we were the capital of the Confederacy, has a lot of racist history. Uh, I was dealt a lot of it as a kid from New York, uh, down hearing some of these things, and the things that, you know, we had a Ku Klux Klan rally next door, to a political event I had when I first ran for governor. I'll be honest with you, John, I didn't know the Ku Klux Klan was still having rallies. Um, So I learned a lot of things when I ran for governor. And, you know, once I got in, I tried to do my best as governor to eradicate a lot of wrongs. I took the Confederate flag off the license plates through executive order, just an offensive symbol. I restored more felon rights than any governor in American history. I mean, I leaned in on the issues, but I never in my wildest dreams could even have predicted what I saw that day in Charlottesville. And it wasn't just the Saturday. John, Friday night was also so frightening when at the University of Virginia, there was a, there was a hill next to it, a big mountain. And at 9 o'clock at night, it was all dark. And all you saw were torches, hundreds coming down like a long snake screaming, you could hear them, blood and soil and Jews, you will not replace us. I mean, it reminds you of 1933, 1934. How did we get to a place in 2017 that people act like
2: this? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, let me quote from your, your book where you talk about the need to study that weekend. You say, we need to study the forces and actions that enable such horrible white supremacist violence out in the open, not under a white hood, not under the cover of night. I mean that—that's what struck me, was was how brazen it was. I, I was actually yeah. in Washington D.C. that weekend. Uh, was that Sunday morning had scheduled as you know the African American Museum. You have to schedule months in advance. Yeah, that's right. And I was uh, right before I went to visit the African American Museum. Here I am seeing these scenes on on TV, on CNN that morning, and then to go to that museum and see the scenes from the civil rights era, those ugly, horrible scenes, and they were so evocative. Yeah,
3: and this probably since that time was the biggest collection of white supremacists and neo-Nazis our nation had seen really in a couple of decades. And it was scary for everybody who was there. You just couldn't quite comprehend. But for me, as I wrote in the book, um, people did, they used to wear hoods. You know, they didn't want their face to be seen. They did it at night. Now they feel Very comfortable doing it in the middle of daylight, you know, at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning in this beautiful town of Charlottesville. And what I say in the book, I think a lot of it started when President Obama got elected. I think for many of these folks, the idea that we had a black president was really too much for them, but they really didn't show out their frustrations. It wasn't until Trump came along and the birther movement and all, you know, Mexicans are rapists and criminals and we want to ban all Muslims in our country that they felt emboldened Well, goodness gracious, if the president can say this, and I remind you, John, he retweeted neo-Nazi and white supremacist things during his campaign for president. So this shouldn't shock any of us, but they felt emboldened. If the president can say it, I can say it. And this was their big – this wasn't about the Robert E. Lee statue. Let me be clear. They didn't know who Robert E. Lee was. This was their time to come out as true haters and true
2: racists. That's what brought them together. You've been around politics for a long time now, yep. at, at very high levels. You were chair of the, the Democratic National Committee, yep. so so you're well aware that race has often been, for a long time, been an undercurrent in American politics. Yep. We've seen the code words, we've seen the Nixon Southern Strategy, um, you know, Ronald Reagan and welfare queens. That's right. Uh, it seems like what's changed in the last couple of years is it's advanced from code to just so direct. When when yeah, it's a per- good
3: question. It, it has moved from code to right out in the open. But what's even got worse is the voter suppression. Uh, you look what happened when Stacey Abrams ran for governor down in Georgia, 50,000 African-Americans. Their names were taken off the rolls right before the election. And I talk in the book about as bad as Charlottesville was. The one benefit, John, is it ripped the scab off of racism. I think people, white people, they're not comfortable with this topic, they're not. And they felt that the issues of racism had been dealt with, it doesn't exist anymore. And what that did at Charlottesville Show, no, it's alive and well in this country. It is here. They are strong. And the point I try to make in the book in the last couple chapters is you got to do something about it. As long as we have inequities in school and housing and healthcare delivery, we have a, especially in southern states, we have a very racist criminal justice system. I mean, John, one of my last pardons as governor, I had a record of the most pardons, shouldn't surprise you. But one gentleman, Lenny Singleton, was a young African-American man. He was a, co- he was a drug addict and he was trying to steal for his addiction. He committed five robberies. Total, the total theft combined was $535. Nobody was ever injured. So for $535, John, I'm going to ask, what do you think his sentence was, in Virginia, a young African-American man?
2: I'm sure it's longer than I would ever guess.
3: Take one guess. Ten years. Okay. Two life sentences plus 130 years for $535. The point I try to make in the book is this is prevalent today in our society. We got to change it. We got to lean in. There's too many politicians out there that put their finger in the air uh, trying to see which way the wind's blowing. Lean in. And until they do it, uh, we're going to continue to have these issues of racism. Now the one thing we can really do is get rid of Trump because he has inflamed all of this. But you know, that's two years away and we really diminished the white nationalist and neo-Nazi movement after Charlottesville. Many of them were indicted, charged, and convicted. Many, as you know, their pictures were put up on social media. The counter-protesters took pictures. The hot dog salesman in Berkeley was fired. Marines were dismissed. I mean, people paid a horrible price. And a year later they tried to do a reunion, nobody wanted to come, Kessler and all the, all the guys uh, who led that movement are being sued, and they've really been crippled financially, and some have gone to jail. But what I worry about, John, it's not that you know, you're not going to have a Charlottesville again with all these people coming, it's those lone wolves at home that hear the president, and he so inflames them and gets them that they pick up an AK-47 and walk into a Walmart or stand outside Pepper's Bar.
2: It seems like another uh, uh, factor, Governor, if you will, is social media. The way it uh, – as you mentioned in the book, a, a lot of the folks who were there in Charlottesville on that August day in 2017 were not Virginians. They had come from all over the country. And so certainly social media yeah. has the ability to kind of stir that up. Oh, yeah.
3: They came from 39 states. These were, And one of the reasons I wrote the book – Is after I left um, the governorship, you know, I spent a year traveling. I went to 25 states. I was thinking of running for president, out meeting with folks. And everywhere I went, they asked me about Charlottesville. For them, they didn't quite really, how did this happen? And, you know, many of them thought that these were citizens of Charlottesville who were the protesters and Virginians, which was not the case. They came in all driven by social media. We had, you know, we had been monitoring these groups, because, you know, when they filed the the permit, the state, we really, you know, I I don't want to be careful how I say it, but our state police did undercover operations. The FBI was involved. The DHS was involved. These people were being told via social dark sites to bring weapons and to hurt people. So we knew ahead of time.
2: You know, you talk about some of the lessons in terms of uh, fighting white supremacy, white nationalism, but also some tactical lessons uh, you talk in terms of you know how communities that are facing these kinds of uh, demonstrations or, or or rallies, if you will, uh, yeah. how they can prepare.
3: What did what did you learn? Well, I'll tell you the first in the, the problem. And I do this. It's, I think it's important in the book is the permitting process that they had in the city of Charlottesville. And understand an incident like this. You know, we the state are in a support role to the city. So I had all my National Guard. I had nearly a thousand state police. But we're in a support role, just as if a crisis happened in San Francisco. The mayor and the chief of police would run it and the state would be support. But, you know, so these uh, knuckleheads filed their petition to want to come to Emancipation Park. And the permit, if you don't act on it within 10 days, is automatically granted. In that 10-day period, the city should have bans, poles, sticks, masks – should have, it never probably should have been at the Park of Emancipation because it's too small, too small park. You can't keep the sides separated. But unfortunately, the city didn't do anything and the permit was granted with no restrictions at all. And, and I say this, I mean, not here to do blame, but that should have been a much better monitored situation early on. The city finally, the Wednesday before the Saturday rally, did finally say, we got to move it out of here. And as I talk about in the book, the ACLU sued the city. And I'm very tough on the ACLU. I'm very angry. And a judge on Friday night sided with the ACLU who was siding with the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists to keep it at Emancipation Park. I'm all for First Amendment. But if law enforcement says we physically cannot protect you because the venue is too small, 1,000 people with weapons, one or 2,000 counter protesters in a park that's the size of someone's backyard – Physically, you can't control it. The key to a protest: keep the two sides separate. They should have had it at McIntyre Park. It got out of hand, and Emancipation was just too small.
2: You you wrote about how people would be have to be stacked several high <laughs> or yeah, to in order to do the
3: me. And in fact, they filed a per- permit right after to come to Richmond for the Lee statue there, but that's state property. So I was in charge as governor. So I immediately suspended the permit, filed Executive Order 67 and 68. I I, I put out an executive order to stop all permitting because that one in Richmond, John, it's a roundabout in the middle of Monument Ave. The permit allowed 5,000 people to attend the Existing permit to attend at that. John, if I put them, stacked them 50 people high on top of each other, I couldn't get 5,000 people. So the point is, you've got to really look. I tell how Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts, called me up right after and said, What advice? I said, Charlie, because he controlled it at the state. I said, it's Your permitting process, you've got to have a venue. And they had a big crowd a couple of weeks later, but I think they had a mile buffer. But they grew two groups, never even saw each other. That's the way you want to do it.
2: You mentioned that Monument Lane in in Richmond, which I've seen. It's really kind of striking. It's almost like you're not only in a different era, but in a different country where you yeah. see all that. Uh, well, I should
3: tell you about the statues. We, It's an important point. If you remember, well, as you well know, you're a history buff. The Revolutionary War started in Virginia with Patrick Henry, Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death, speech at St. John's Church. It ended in Virginia at the Battle of Yorktown. Cornwall's defeated. Pretty big piece of Virginia history. World War One. World, end all alone. World War II, World War Two, big. Those three incidents. I think there are twelve monuments in Virginia. Guess how many they are of the Confederate War. I would guess three hundred
2: and seventy-eight. You're very good. You read the book. <laughs> Somebody read the book. In fact, I wrote that down. I thought that was one of the striking, uh, yeah, the striking uh, figures in your book. You you mentioned there's something like four hundred and twenty-nine monuments to uh, war memorials in yeah. in Virginia. Three hundred and seventy-eight are of the Confederacy. Yeah. Uh, and what what's you, the other
3: key point on that? Many of them were built during massive Jim, resistance had Jim, nothing to do Jim with the war. Brewer,
2: era, that's as right you, as you know that's so right. where it was really um, yeah. really striking. Uh, what what is the status on taking down some of those Confederate monuments? Uh? So, well, things hopefully will change soon, but as it exists today, no locality,
3: you know, we're a Dillon rule state. There are very few states that are Dillon rule, which basically the localities have very little power. You couldn't add tact. You can't do anything unless the state approves it. The same applies to the monuments. So no locality can do anything. It's all controlled by the state. And the Republicans in the legislature will never change it. We have a great shot this year, John, of winning our House and Senate. We only need one seat in both. If the elections were here today, we'd win both. And then I think we'd see legislation pass to give local jurisdictions the authority. If they want to take a statue down, they should be able to do it. Just as I took, as I say, the Confederate flag off the license plate. It is offensive. The Confederate war was for the preservation of slavery. There's no other way you cut it. The people who fought on the southern side were traitors to the nation, and they should not be. I mean, I understand it's a part of the history. But, you know, there's a lot of great museums and cemeteries where these statues would look just great.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on this rise, if you will, of white supremacy, white nationalism that we've seen, or at at least the demonstration of it that we've seen with these shootings and everything that's in Charlottesville and and what's gone online. Do you think it's always been there and been kind of a latent um, cancer, if you will, in this society? Or is it somehow been incited by either economic insecurities or politicians such as Donald Trump who are appealing to that?
3: Yeah, I don't think it's always been there. If you think earlier part of our nation's history and, you know, up through World War II, I mean, people were proud that they were immigrants. I mean, you know, Bartholomew McAuliffe came in 1857. Um, you know, it was a part of who we were, a mosaic tile, a melting pot of so many folks from around the globe. I think as we moved forward, I, I agree with you, in income inequality – and, you know, let's be honest, as you mentioned earlier, social media and all the other modes of communication that stir these things up. And, you know, the point I try to make, you know, people say, well, these Mexicans are coming taking our job. I mean, John, we have nine million, I think, job openings today in America. There are plenty of jobs. Now, you got to go back and get the skill set, which is another issue. But, you know, that's what you need to do. And it really has never been an issue. I do think a similar moment was Obama's election, I think, for some people. Um, I mean, you've had obviously these prejudices and issues as it relates to the South and the slavery issue. So that still exists a little bit. I mean, issues around, uh, you know, racism has long been part of Southern culture and it's unfortunate. And as I say, it's part of our criminal justice system and so forth. But I think uh, President Obama was a seminal moment. We've always had it. But when he got elected, you know, they all, you know, folks got all stirred up. And then just Trump just unleashed it. Had Trump not won and Hillary had been in office or any other Democrat, we would not be seeing this today. We wouldn't. I mean he's created this issue about the border and people coming into this country. You want to keep our borders safe. Of course you want to do it. But, but the way he has everybody believe in the country, they're coming in and they're raping you know, your wife and children and they're stealing and, and they're all murderers. I mean that's what he would have you believe.
2: Let me ask you about uh, Donald Trump. You, as you mentioned, had given some consideration to running for the presidency. Uh, What do you think the roadmap is for a Democrat to beat Donald Trump in in 2020? I mean, a lot of Democrats I talk to are pretty nervous about this election. Well, it's good to always be
3: nervous, but I'll sit here and you can – we'll play this back after the election. I really think it's very hard for Donald Trump to win re-election. You know, I go to the point that three states in America, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania – We lost those three states by a combined 77,000 votes. There was a lot of voter suppression activities in those states, John. We now have a Democratic governor in Wisconsin and and in Michigan. But I think what happened in 77,000 votes, and people woke up the next day and said, holy cow, how did this possibly happen? 92 million people did not vote in the 2016 election. And they woke up the next day, many of them, it's not 92 million, but many of them said, We'll, we'll, you know, we're going to vote next time. You saw the first really where it played out was uh, Virginia because we always have our elections after the next year. So in 2017, we picked up the most House of delegates in 140 years. In 2018, we won the House of Representatives. We netted seven new governors and eight new state legislative chambers. So my point is, there's not a Hillary state that we won that we're going to lose. I do believe that those three states are back in the Democratic column. You know, we, can, you know, if, if anyone can screw it up, we can. I mean, we have been known to be <laughs> a circular firing squad and full as, disco- as
2: we've seen in some of these recent debates. Yeah,
3: it, it, and I've talked in nauseam about that. But I just think it's, and I don't understand the strategy of Trump doubling down on this nuttiness. You know, maybe he believes that there are all of these white nationalists and neo-Nazis hiding under rocks who didn't vote in 16. And because of what he's saying, he's going to really get them out to vote. That's not the case in the country. And what he has really done, non-college educated women. I mean, they have left him in droves, independent women. So, you know, as long as, you know, we put a good comprehensive plan out there, I honestly don't believe there's any way that Trump can win again. And I'm hoping we have a big enough movement that we can get the Senate back, and it's hard. We gotta keep Alabama. If we don't, we gotta win four seats, that's a lot. Um, But if we can get the Senate, I mean, the damage that Trump's done to the country, I worry most about the judiciary. I mean, generationally now, he has shaped the federal courts that's gonna impact us for many years to come. And we're not gonna be able to change that. We can get a new Democrat in, a new Senate, maybe we can get some, but I mean, the damage that permanently has been done, and I will say to all those 92 million, you know, it's because you're in action on voting, that you know, don't tell me your vote doesn't matter. I'm tired of hearing that. I'm still mad about 2,000. I'm still mad at Nader uh, running as an independent. Cost us New Hampshire and Florida. We never would have gone to Iraq. Al Gore would have won. I don't know what the hell Jill Stein was thinking, running as a Green, you know, independent, and she took enough votes in those three states to cost us the election. I mean, smarten
2: up, Democrats. Get in the game. Final question, <laughs> if I could, Governor. Uh, you've obviously – in this book, uh, it reflects that you've given a lot of thought to racial issues and the, mm-hmm. and the state of uh, race relations in this society. Do you see hope or do you think we're, we're entering – we're in the middle of or even sliding into a, a very difficult period?
3: I, I see hope and that's what I talk about in the book and John Lewis and I, as I say, collaborate. The, the one thing about Charlottesville, it did whoop in people's eyes and people saying, well – Yeah, I guess racism is here. I thought I'd gone away or I was comfortable with it or whatever it may be. So I'm hopeful that people now have woken to it. I I end the chapter by saying people got to start doing something. They got to quit talking. You know, I don't want to hear about any more reconciliation commissions, a bunch of white people sitting around making themselves feel good. We got problems in the country. We can fix it. Uh, But it's going to take leadership from the top. Winning the White House is very, very, very important. And I think it was hard for President Obama when he got in uh, they just fought him on all these different issues. I think with a new Democratic president, with a Democratic House, maybe a Senate, hopefully a Senate, oh, I think this will change dramatically. But we've got to fix the schools and sentencing and all the things I've talked about. Because there are inherent racist things that exist in our society today that are going to perpetuate it. You know, Charlottesville showed it's here. Now we need to take a sledgehammer and break
2: down all those old barriers. Governor Terry McAuliffe, thank you for being here yeah. at the Chronicle. And with that, uh, that's this edition of It's All Political. I'm John Diaz, the editorial page editor. Thank you for listening.
1: I'd like to thank you all for listening to today's episode. I'd like to thank Governor McAuliffe for being here today. I'd like to thank John Diaz for hosting today's episode and to Spencer Whitney for producing it. And remember, whether you're a friend of the Clintons or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have, is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garifoli. Thanks.